CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome uh, to the Radical Reverend Show. It's uh, delightful to have all of you back out there in listener land. And uh, we're continuing to speak about successful activism on the show and activists um, who've managed to change quite a bit. Um, And I have one of them on today. He actually plays uh, two roles. Uh, John Sewell was the mayor of our city, Toronto, and also I would consider an activist, particularly around the issue of police reform, which we're going to speak to him about, also an author of many books. Um, So John, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks, Sherry. Good to be here. Uh, So let's start in uh, about um, the topic at hand, which is police reform. We saw, of course, in the last few years uh, since the murder of George Floyd, an uprising um, part of the Black Lives Matters movement around the world. And their number one cry is to defund the police and uh, by, by extension refund other areas. We've known for a long time that about the social determinants of health. And we also know that there are different ways of dealing, especially for people with mental health crises um, than sending in men with guns. You have been at the forefront of this for many, many, many years. So perhaps just go over a little bit of the history um, that you've had uh, around policing and, uh, and what you've done. Well, of course, my, I guess the first big thing that I did in regard to policing was when I was mayor. And in 1979, the police shot and killed, chased him into his house um, after he'd been shouting in a laneway and somebody had complained about him shouting and he ran into his house, locked his door, the police broke it down, shot him. Um, I was mayor at the time. I spoke out very strongly and say, this is wrong. He was the eighth person killed in 13 months by the Toronto police. And I said, this is wrong. We have to change the policies. And the police commission, it's now called the police board, the police commission should be changing its policies. I was viciously attacked by the police association and police officers, um, and in fact, by members of council who passed a motion to censor me for saying those kinds of things. (laughs) It was absolutely extraordinary. Um, So I learned right away the power of the police um and and how they they did things but the big thing is i spoke out very strongly now of course one of the great problems is that the uh uh, the police haven't changed very much since then you know they still go out and and shoot a whole bunch of people um you know i mean i think police in canada kill uh something like um uh, three dozen people a year um, so that it, it, it's, you know, anyway, so that's when I got my interest in policing. And then, of course, um, in, in, in 1999, 2000, um, when, again, there was a lot more activism about policing, I helped form the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition, where we would decide that we would try and look at alternative police policies, try and be a bit more positive about police, not just concentrate on police wrongdoing, but say, look, at there's there's other things, better things that police can do. And I've been a part of that for the last 20 years. 
trying to reform police. And we're often at the police board um, saying you should be doing this rather than doing this. They, of course, hardly ever listen. It's very, very discouraging. But my line is, you got to keep wanging away, and maybe not they'll they'll change something. I mean, one example is on strip search policy, where the Supreme Court of Canada in 2001 said to the Toronto Police, "You're strip searching too many people." Uh, police board said, "Oh well, you know, we're just doing our job," and they changed nothing. And under Bill Blair as the, the police chief, the P Toronto police began to strip search 40% of the people who were arrested. I mean, you could be arrested for fraud. They'd strip search you. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, and uh, it wasn't until, and every year, by the way, our group would go to the police board and say, you're strip searching too many people. You should be changing the policies. And they just wouldn't do it and wouldn't do it. And do it. it was only after the killing of George Floyd that in November of last year, the police said, oh, maybe we should change our policy. And so now they're strip searching a lot less people. Um, you know, the, most police forces in Ontario strip search 1% of the people arrested. Toronto, as I say, was stripping 40%. It's now down to seven or 8% that they're strip searching. 19 years it took them. To, to change it. And I remember when, when they did change it, you know, <laughs> Mayor John Tory said, thank you, Mr. Sewell, for your persistence on this issue. <laughs> you know, it's all I could say was, well, come on board, you just aren't with it. But the point, one of the points is about activism is you gotta stay engaged. You know, you can't just say, this is a one-off thing. I'll go there once and do, you know, power authorities don't respect that. You have to keep wanging away um, I mean, if I can give another example uh, from the 1970s, it was the whole fight to protect the island community, the people who live on Toronto Island. Um, they were in a big, long fight that really started in the 1950s. And it, as, uh, as Metro Council began to destroy more and more houses on the, the Toronto Islands to make it into one giant, big, dull park, um, they began to fight more and more and more. And during the 1970s, the fight really, really intensified. Um, and then for various reasons, uh, when I was mayor again, we, we managed to push the issue such that the province got involved and appointed a commission that in fact recommended that the Toronto Islands be preserved forever as a residential community. It's a very, very small part of the whole Toronto Islands, but never it's preserved. But the point is that they stayed engaged for a long period of time until finally they could find a weakness in the, in the, the power authorities. And in fact, we could win that fight. So the, there are some ex it, it, persistence is absolutely critical. And having a good, strong group, not just one person, but a bunch of people um, who, who are always hanging away at the issue. Speaking uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show to uh, John Sewell, former mayor and reformer. And of course, the theme has been for the last few months on the show, activism and how to be successful at it. And uh, John, you certainly are ex an example. Um, so, so history in the sense, I mean, George Floyd's murder happened and that sped things up. History tends to catch up, um, precede and catch up with reformers, it seems. Um, to get back to the police angle, one of the interesting um, facts that you brought forward in, in your recent talk, um, actually at Trinity St. Paul's, 
was um, how few arrests actually happened from the police. So, so perhaps you can, that surprised me, and I'm sure it surprised many who listened, um, perhaps talk about that as well. And, and also another issue that you brought up about the sort of drive arounds, you know, having two in a car yeah. and drive arounds, because yeah. uh, again, th these are things people kind of take for granted and really just don't know the facts behind them. So speak well, about that a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in fact, we have a misunderstanding about police. We think they're, you know, they're crime fighters. Um, and then that's how they're spending their time. Uh, but on average in Canada, and this is according police data, that's not my data. This is police data filed with Statistics Canada. On average in Canada, the, the, a police officer arrests 10 people a year not quite one a month. That's on average across Canada. In Toronto, Toronto has one of the lowest rates of crime in all of Canada. It, I mean, and people don't believe that either, but it's true. <laughs> you look at it, we've got very, very low rates. In Toronto, police arrest on average six people a year, one every two months. So it's clear that yeah, our understanding of police is crime fight. I mean, sorry, it's wrong. It's a very, very small part of what they do. What is actually happening is we've loaded a whole bunch of other stuff onto police, which they seem happily to have take, to taken on as jobs. Uh, but in fact, it has nothing much to do with crime. Um, so it's this whole thing about wellness checks or going to people who are in mental crisis Police aren't capable of doing that. I mean, you know, there, there was a great article in the Globe and Mail by, by an, an RCMP officer based in Ottawa saying, you know, they ask us to go to these calls about mental crisis. We don't know anything about all this. We don't know how to deal with it. And of course, you'd think the police would say, look, we don't know anything about it. Why don't we get some people who know about mental health and let them do it as well? Or why are we sending police to deal with all these youth calls about youth, you know, the police can't, it's, it's not about crime um, and on and on and on and drug overdoses and so forth and the homeless. Um, now, as many people have said, these are tasks that we should be taking away from police. Some people call it defunding. I think the more accurate term is detasking. We should be saying, let's get the proper people to deal with this, not the police. Don't be sending a guy with a gun and a taser and body armor to deal with most of these calls. Um, in, in Toronto, in the first four months of this year, according to the Toronto police, they had 300,000 calls for service. Of those calls for service, 10,000 involved something about violence, which might have just been a bar fight for all we know. That means 97% of the calls they're getting have nothing to do with violence or crime. I mean, this is, you know, so we, we got to rethink that. Now, the, I mean, the other question you raise is, is about um, police patrols. I mean, there's very good evidence that show that police patrols do not make people feel safer and have nothing to do with responding to crime. Um, the analogy is firefighters 100 years ago Firefighters used to patrol streets waiting for fires in the hope that hey, if they could be there when the fire was there. They finally realized that's a dumb way of doing things. <laughs> you know, better to be in the station, wait till you get the call. 
But, you know, 70% of police uh, activities are involved in patrol work. Total waste of time. And in Toronto, we have a rule that says after dark, you have to have two officers in the car. I mean, you know, it's a crazy way to spend money. It's a crazy way to to tell people to do something that really isn't a useful job. I mean, if you're a cop, you can't be very happy about it. My, you know, my own theory is that one of the reasons you have police chases is that cops are so bored driving around doing nothing. You know, hey, here's some activity. Let's go chase somebody. So anyway, so you know, we don't understand all these things about the police. And I, I mean, just to tie this in, one of the great things about being active in policing for me is how much I've learned. And it's over only over a long time as I've been trying to address the problems that come up that I begin to learn other things. And those other things help to give you a real clear picture of what's going on and what the alternatives might be. And in, in terms of being an activist, I think that's absolutely critical to have a real understanding of the deep nature of the problem that you're dealing with. It's not a small, environmentalists know this very well. You know, if you want to understand the, the world of, of you know, climate change and everything, it's not a matter of dipping your foot in and saying, hey, I got it. Nope, you, you got to learn it and you got to figure out what to do. So that's part of being an activist is being willing to devote yourself to understanding the issue in its fullness. Uh, speaking here to John Sewell, former mayor and uh, police reformer, um, one of the one of the issues that that folk have raised around the police, of course, is the huge chunk of the city's budget. Um, and one of the things that you've said to me, John, um, is is that the nature of our city council has shifted over the years. Um, you know, mainly and mostly part, you know, thanks to to Mike Harris, but now, of course, furthered by Doug Ford. Um, talk about that a little bit, because people just find it confusing why um, city council seems to have so little power over what police do or don't do and how much, you know, money goes their way. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I want to compare city council today with city council in my time during the 1970s. Um, and what was really interesting in the 1970s is that we had a lot of politicians who came out of strong community movements. Um, the, 19, the early 1970s, we, we were confronted with a whole bunch of issues with expressways that they're gonna run through. Well, one of them is gonna run down Spadina Avenue and make it a six lane roadway that was depressed below grade. I mean, just an extraordinary thing. But another one was gonna run through, of all things, Rosedale and Forest Hill. <laughs> um, just, you know, extraordinary. So we are fighting that. We were fighting high rise developments that were being pitched down across neighborhoods across the city. Um, and, and so forth. And we managed to, to create a, um, uh, a, a community movement across the city uh, that won elections in 1972. So we had almost a majority on city council. 11 out of the 23 members of city council came from community organizations that have been involved in the fight. 
Uh, the, the 12th vote we needed was David Crombie, who was mayor, it turned out to be very progressive at the, the end of it. And <clears throat> what that meant was that as politicians, we were rooted in the fact that we didn't have all the answers, that in fact, we had worked with community organizations that we knew you know, had as much information as we did, maybe more information than we did. And so that the way you made decisions was by consulting with people and recognizing that as politicians, you didn't have all the answers. Well, today we seem to be in a position where the politicians think they know best. And so when they have consultations, you always feel they're a bit fake, that they aren't really listening to what you're saying and they don't wanna take it seriously because hey, they got all the answers. So that's been a very, very significant change. And it would be nice to get back to the position where, in fact, we had many more city politicians who were rooted in communities. Now, City of Council tried to do that when they proposed the 47 ward system in 2018, which would have been a systemic change because it would have sort of said to the existing politicians, there were, I think, 24 councillors, 25 councillors at that point, hey, you can't run in your old ward. The world's changed. Well, that would have really brought in a whole bunch of new voices to city council. And I think many of them would have been rooted in, in community organization. So it would have changed the nature. And that's why I think Premier Doug Ford killed that idea and just took it off the table. You aren't allowed to talk about that. Even though the City of Toronto Act had said, this is something that the City of Toronto could do. So, you know, that, that was an attempt to try and get rid of the idea of local decision-making and real activism by politicians. And boy, it would sure be nice to get back to that. You know, we still have a lot of that in the downtown of Toronto but we don't have that in the suburbs of Toronto. I mean, that is part because we had a very, very progressive Toronto in 1980s and the uh, 1970s and 1980s uh, until the mega city was created. And, and uh, in fact, this, the, 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 the downtown area was submerged within these suburban communities that didn't have that same sense of, of community politics. Uh, speaking here um, to to uh, John Sewell, if you've just tuned in. And by the way, uh, thank you for tuning in. And you can hear this if you miss some of it on podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, um, starting, of course, right after. Um, so, John, uh, as you're speaking about the, the, the change of city council and who's on it and who's not, um, I couldn't help thinking about the power of developers um, in this province when you sp speak about the suburbs. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you could say something about that, because because, um, of course, politicians need funding to run, um, and the funding comes from somewhere. Um, does that have an impact on the decisions made? Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. If you know that, in fact, you, you're going to rely on somebody for campaign contributions, that's obviously going to affect the way you make decisions. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, you, you won't admit it, but in fact, it, I mean, we, we all know that, you know, we, you work for a company and, and they pay your, your salary. Well, you know, you can't be too critical of the company, right? Um, and it's the same with politicians and, and, and that's a problem. Um, and we got to figure out how to get around that. We've tried to impose some fundraising limits, but they are not very strong. 
Um, so that, you know, that compromises an awful lot of politicians. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, a lot of politicians think their job in life is to get reelected. Sorry, that's not their role. Their role is to do the right thing, even if it means you, they don't get reelected. I mean, and, and you know, I'd, I'd love to find some politicians say that. Now, I, I think we've had a number of politicians in Toronto recently who have worked on that principle. Um, I'm going to do the right thing. And they might say, hey, I'm not even going to run again. I mean, Joe Cressy has been, a, in my opinion, admirable in that regard. And he says he's not running again. Okay, well, we understand that. The point is, you got to do the right thing. Um, and one of the job of activists is to try and get politicians to do that. Come on now, do the right thing. Let's be serious. You know, this is, and let's face it, we're in Toronto, in, in other cities, we're facing very, very serious problems at the moment. The problem of economic inequality is extraordinary. I mean, imagine we consider ourselves progressive and there's people living in tents in Toronto, not just in Toronto, but all other cities in Canada. What's gone wrong? You know, what, what's gone wrong where, you know, almost a quarter of the kids in, Can in, in Toronto are growing up in poverty? You wonder about, you know, some kids involved in crime. Um, well, here, here's a good reason, you know. Um, although, again, just to understand it, youth crime in Canada has gone down by 50% in the last decade. Not up, down 50%. So, anyway, but, but we've got these, and we've got climate change, and we've got big problems. So... Our job as activists is to try and, you know, push on that point and say, you got to do the right thing. Come on. No. And here's the right thing. to Here's the next step that you can take. <clears throat> so some people might say, hey, we've got to abolish police. My argument would be your chances of doing that are really, really slim. But you can say, here's some changes we could make right now to make things better. And we could do that in all sorts of, uh, of ways about all sorts of of community issues. Um, one of the uh, one of the things here, speaking to John Sewell, former mayor and, and activist, uh, and particularly police reformer, um, I think you know the the call for abolition comes out of the sense of complete um, frustration with reform. Um, and you yourself, John, have been kind of a, an example of you know how long it takes to get so little. Why is that with the police? I mean. Presumably, we pay their salaries, they're public employees. Presumably, that means that government is their employer, in a sense. Um, why can't their employer get a handle? I know that there was uh, you know, a motion that came before city council to just, just to fund them by a, you know, really a percentage um, to put in place a pilot uh, project for mental health professionals to go out on you know, mental health wellness calls and wellness checks. Um, but I mean, it, why can't these get legs, these initiatives? Um, and instead, in fact, we know from city council, they gave them more money for body cameras and people yep. don't want to see you know, crimes. They don't yep. want to see the police, you know, do bad things. They want to stop the police from doing bad things. So, um, so what's the problem? Well, part of it, I think, is that, that uh, people don't want to be seen, be seen as being, quote, soft on crime. Uh, awful phrase in my mind. Ab, you know, 
in my opinion, what you don't want to be is dumb on crime, <laughs> being soft on crime, you know, and that's something that the police association, which is the, the organization of existing and former police officers, keep saying, if anybody criticizes police, they'll say, you're soft on crime. I mean, just as when I was saying, in, when they killed Albert Johnson in 1979, we should be changing policy. They said, Sewell, you're a cop hater. Cop hater, wait a minute, I'm asking for change. Um, so I think that, that people are very, politicians are very worried that if they criticize the police, they're gonna be called soft on crime and, and, you know, and that will somehow do them harm. Uh, whereas I think that if in fact they would stand up and say, sorry, we're gonna go ahead with this change, they could probably get away with it. I mean, Yazer Nafki, when he was the Minister of Justice in Kathleen Gwynne's government in 2016, brought in the regulation to get rid of carding. Carding was something that police have been doing for, for 15 years. We knew it was discriminatory. Police kept saying, oh, no, no, it's not discriminatory. It's absolutely necessary. He came in and said, we are getting rid of it. Well, it survived. The world has not collapsed. The world has, in fact, gotten better. And if you're a black kid in Toronto, you're really happy that your chance of being stopped and questioned by police is much, much, much less than it used to be. It's not perfect, but it's much, much less. So it's really a matter of people being willing to say, I'm, I'm standing up to that. And this idea of being, you know, soft and calm, you know, just, you know, smarten up. And they've, they've got to say that, but they don't say that. And we, we don't have too many minutes left. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to John Sewell, former mayor, about, uh, about activism, successful activism, and, um, and some of those issues like police reform that seem a little bit more resistant to change and how we can kind of move forward on that file. Um, one, of the, one of the things that police have, of course, increasingly so now is um, surveillance methods. So one can, can barely blame some politicians for being a little concerned um, that they might be surveilled as well. And now with using artificial intelligence, um, uh, maybe say a few words about these more recent developments. I know um, just uh, anecdotally here um, that even though I kind of fought for the police in a sense and got finally PTSD covered as a workplace injury for them and other first responders, um, when I said that they shouldn't march in pride and supported pride in that uh, in uniform, um, I was immediately attacked by them on social media and didn't feel good, made me feel unsafe, quite frankly. Um, yeah. So can you maybe say a few words about about this this recent development? Well, there, there's no question that uh, we do live in a surveillance world not just the police, but all sorts of other things are, people are watching us very, very carefully. And there's all sorts of, you know, cyber security stuff that's happening and, and cyber surveillance that's happening. Um, there's some attempt now to try and control that. The Toronto police have come out with a draft policy uh, about surveillance intelligence, or artificial intelligence programs um, that's now under review by the the police board, and and I think probably in January, February, we'll probably see the kind of policy they want to put in place. Um, I th I think it's admirable that uh, the police board is actually trying to address this issue. Um, I hope the policy they adopt is going to be strong enough. Um, I don't know. Um, we know there's a bunch of other 
countervailing forces. There are private companies um, that are, are doing this surveillance stuff on us. Um, and, and we all know about uh, um, the, the, you know, the cyber crime where they're demanding money from companies that you know, they're shutting down their, the, the, their, their online operations. Um, so it's clear the police have to understand all this, whether they can, I don't know. Um, so it, it's a complicated issue, but the idea of actually the police having strong policies so that we get to control the artificial intelligent programs the police have is, in my opinion, a good one. And I hope that policy, once it comes out in January or February, will be good. I know that our organization, the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition, has actually put in a brief saying we've got to have a much stronger policy than their draft provides. Uh, speaking uh, with John Sewell here, former mayor, and it's been a pleasure. We've just got a minute or two left, John. Can you just sum up and tell us, uh, activists out there who are listening, what should they be doing right now to uh, forward the issue of, of changing our policing? What should they do? Well, I, I think what they've got to do is they've got to make sure that they are coming to the Toronto Police Board and making their views known and making their views known to local politicians. That doesn't happen enough. We can't just continue to sit there and complain about individual acts of police wrongdoing, of which there are too many. We've got to address those policy issues, and that goes to the police board and to our members of city council. And we've got to push both of those bodies to start being more powerful and more active themselves. Thank you so much. A real pleasure speaking to John Sewell. Stay uh, tuned. You're going to be hearing Rima Burns McGowan yet uh, next. And uh, again, a view from the province on this issue and others. Your radio, CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, part two. Um, it was fun to talk to John Sewell on part one about activism and reform from, you know, the, the government point of view. I mean, he was mayor of Toronto. Um, now we're moving in a, a slightly different direction. I'm speaking to and honored to speak to Rima Burns McGowan, who's the MPP for Beaches East York, critic for homelessness and poverty in the official opposition at Queen's Park in Ontario, and former professor from U of T. Um, Rima, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, Sherry. It's such a huge honor to be here with you. I love our conversation. So this is really awesome. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so first of all, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> thank you. So thank maybe you could say, since this is the Radical Reverend Show and faith is kind of part of our portfolio, just a little bit about Hanukkah, how you celebrate it, what it's about. So I love Hanukkah and it's important to sort of place myself in all of this. I am um, married to the son of a former Presbyterian minister and I embraced Islam as well about in 2013, but we still, I still consider myself in different ways, both Muslim and Jewish. And um, we celebrate everything in our household. That's how we do things. We just do all the things. And that's how uh, David and I raised our four kids, two of whom are my stepkids. Um, and so we do both uh, Christmas and Hanukkah uh, at this time of year. And Hanukkah, and one of my um, my stepdaughter, Katie, when she moved within the UK, her boxes got lost at some point and she couldn't find her Hanukkah. This is my stepdaughter. So she's only Jewish by osmosis. 
And at some point she wrote to her father and she said, dad, it's just not Christmas without Hanukkah. And um, that's how we figure we know we did a, a good job. Hanukkah is a really, really, really profoundly beautiful holiday. I am overjoyed that it came early this year. Um, of course, Jewish holidays are on the lunar calendar, so they move around within a sort of parameter. And um, it, I'm overjoyed it came earlier this year. I just think we can use all the light in our lives that we could get. And the whole idea behind Hanukkah is that a little vial of oil that was um, uh, intended to last, only, that was only enough for a day, lasted for eight days uh, until more could come to reconsecrate the temple that had been uh, destroyed. So that that miracle is really the idea of the miracle and the idea of light and joy is all what Hanukkah is about. And so I, I always just feel like, you know, this is this is a really profoundly beautiful time of year. Grateful it came at the beginning of the of the season and may there be miracles in all of our lives this year. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, let's talk about how we can maybe assist those miracles in happening. Um, you're the, the critic for homelessness and poverty, and we've been doing this series on the show about activism and successful activists. Activists that somehow, you know, with no money, no power, managed to break through and get, uh, first of all, politicians to listen to them, and second of all, managed to get some things done. Um, I, I, I'll just ask you from your life as an activist, because you've always been one, and now you're a politician. Um, can you think of an example? What what jumps to mind when you think of that? Well, actually, I would, I would say, I mean, I, it was former students of mine who um, talked to me Sometimes I use the word bullied me into running. This is a weird job for me because I'm an introvert. I'm a bookworm. You can see um, I'm, a, I'm a bookworm. And um, and I'm and I'm in now a job that was made by extroverts for extroverts. So it's an inherently uncomfortable place for me. I'm also somebody who's inherently kind of shy. So activism is inherently uncomfortable place for me. But I don't consider myself to be, I know that I'm in the role of politician, I'm ele elected official, but I actually consider myself to be a social justice advocate working in politics. And the reason that my students asked me to run is they said, Rima, you've got these like really strong ideas on how we create systems and societies that work for everyone and you need a bigger platform than a classroom to be talking about those ideas. So I really think about it in terms of like, how do I take the ideas that um, are developed in many, in many classrooms when people think about, in many frameworks, in many books, when people think about how do we create spaces that work for everybody and bring that into the wider world of politics. And I spend a lot of time at Queen's Park and even in spaces like Twitter and Facebook actually talking about there's this specific thing that's happening over here that um, we need to fix, but it's an example of a system that's not working. So how do we actually take this and fix the system? And for me, it's about changing the narrative and changing the discourse. And that's always a really, really huge step on the way to getting policy changes that we need. So well, talking about cool. changing that that narrative and that discourse, uh, where have you seen that that happen? Um, you know, more or less successfully. I mean, there's always so sure. much more to do. Um, but well, continue, I, yeah, for sure. So uh, let me give you an example, a couple of examples. One from uh, Beaches East York specifically. There were um, some folks who were being evicted by a predatory landlord. 
uh, last year during the um, pandemic. And there was a grassroots group that gathered around to empower them to become a tenants union. And they ended up going to the land, the landlord and tenant board and consolidating their cases together with the help of a really solid lawyer who was working for free. And because, and I think that my support was really crucial in convincing the landlord tenant board that they had to take these people seriously. They couldn't just treat them individually or as muckrakers. And we ended up getting their eviction cases all dismissed. And in fact, we ended up chasing one of the predatory landlords right out of the neighborhood. And I think that was a combination of their hard work and my strong support. Um, and I think that the another case that we can look at is the way that um, uh, homelessness is playing out and the issue of encampments. And of course, not just in Toronto, in other places as well, and we've seen most recently this real issue in, in Hamilton, uh, because the province has no plan and got slammed by the Auditor General uh, last week for having no plan and out and like really out of touch funding that was based on outdated StatsCan data uh, in terms of housing need. So we have municipalities that can't deal with the homelessness crisis that's happening. And it's not just in Toronto or Hamilton or Kitchener. It's literally every municipality, including little ones and rural areas that have never had to deal with this before. And of course, it's related to the housing crisis, but that's sort of let's compartmentalize that for a moment. So what's happening is shelters and shelter hotels are overwhelmed. People are now encamped in parks. And so the way that municipalities are dealing with it is to send the police forces to, that's not a solution. That's not a solution. And we have the mayor of this city who's called all of those people protesters, but they're not protesters. If you actually go down and talk to them, they are housing support workers. They are the frontline workers who either for you know, not a lot of money or on a volunteer basis, literally keep people alive. So we have this ridiculous system where we have volunteers literally keeping people alive and then we're punishing them by um, clearing them, arresting them, hurting them when they're arrested and then giving them these unconstitutional bail conditions. So the role that I've played is to say, whoa, what this depiction of is what's going on is not actually what's happening. So let me as an MPP and as the critic tell you what's actually happening so we change the narrative and hopefully eventually change the policies. I mean, it's interesting to, um, uh, you know, be of kind of our vintage <laughs> look at housing in this province and this city because um, uh, because you can really clearly see, I mean, I grew up in the city, um, which was, you know, as I always say, when Jesus was in short pants a long time ago, um, but there were two shelters. There was no such thing as a, you know, as a food bank. Um, I remember my dad talking about the 30s and food banks. And, and I said, what was that? Um, and interestingly enough, when I was at Queen's Park, a Swedish delegation came and asked the same thing. One woman famously said, why do they keep food in banks?
mistakes um, <laughs> because they, so, I mean, we forget that the, these um, conditions have been created by governments um, and they've been created because the tax base isn't there for starters, but also because they haven't put money into housing for, for decades, right? Um, and uh, so that's what we're dealing with here. But I mean, interesting that you should um, be in that portfolio. I can't think of a better person to the encampments. And by the way, we're talking to Rima Burns McGowan. She is critic for homelessness and poverty in the official opposition in the NDP at Queens Park, um, former professor and MPP for Beaches East York. So um, we were talking to John Sewell earlier about policing and its problems. And we know that one of the central, if not the central demand of Black Lives Matter is to defund the police and move that funding somewhere else. Um, uh, we talked to him about, you know, the, the danger of wellness checks when you've got men with guns walking in those places. Actually, we had um, Professor Beverly Bain, um, who's been on the show and who spoke at our church just recently, again, on the same issue. And she said something that really struck home for me, and I thought I'd heard it all about policing. But she said, you know, why would we expect that men, mainly men, with guns would solve uh, social problems? <laughs> Which I thought was a very interesting way of, of looking at it, but we do. So we spent, what, $2 million to clear out encampments uh, recently in central Toronto. Um, so where do you see the way forward for activists? Because there's a, people are feeling really impotent and they're feeling really frustrated that you had this worldwide movement and yet, you know, our city councillors couldn't even take 15% off the police budget. In fact, they got more money for body cams. So, you know, what do we do? Reba, tell us. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I... I think it's really crucial again to, to, to change the idea of what homelessness is and why it happens. Um, it doesn't happen because people make bad personal choices. It happens because people um, often, always through circumstances way beyond their control, um, whether it's violence at home, whether it's the extreme racism that they're encountering, whatever kinds of barriers, whether it's historical legacies of colonial violence, whatever it is, um, there are reasons, in fact, that uh, Black and Indigenous people are um, disproportionately represented among the unhoused. People, um, sometimes it's an injury at work or an illness that ends up pushing somebody uh, eventually through a series of unfortunate events into uh, into homelessness. But homeless, the people who are unhoused are not different from you and me or any of those folks sitting in the conservative benches. They really are not. And until we understand that, um, we're going to have this idea that somehow they brought this face of fate upon them and therefore they deserve it. So there's this weird moralistic refusal to be logical about this because the logical thing is if you're whether you do this because it's the right thing to do or the fiscally responsible thing to do in for either set of reasons you're going to come to a point where you recognize exactly what beverly bain said it is ridiculous to try to solve a problem 
from its fallout. You have to solve it. You have to prevent it from happening. So you, it is cheaper to keep people housed in the first place than to deal with all of the issues that happen when they become unhoused and unwell from being unhoused and um, addicted to substances because they literally cannot bear to get up in the morning and face their lives. Like it just makes no sense whatsoever. So what you do is you go back to how do we prevent these things from happening? How do we, yes, we have to rehouse people who are unhoused. We have to take care of them until um, they, in ways that work for them until we have that housing uh, built, which we obviously need to build. But we have to start at the beginning. We have to make sure that um, we get rid of racism and we uh, deal with intergenerational trauma and we um, eradicate poverty. Uh, though, which can be done, uh, you know, and again, people shouldn't be getting food from charity. That is ridiculous. We need policies to ensure that people can afford to eat and are not food insecure. That's, you know, you, that is kind of the root of all of these things. Housing is a human right. Let's act on what that means. So it, it partly is about recognizing that what is happening is not only wrong, but fiscally ridiculous and and then and then really changing the way and it shouldn't be a partisan issue this should be something that is just understood in the same way that it's understood that if you're sick in this country you get help no matter whether you can afford to pay for it or not i mean certainly um as a partisan issue i mean when you look at the history again in the 70s you know probably the gold standard of redevelopment for housing was the saint lawrence market um redevelopment and uh, co-ops. I mean, you've got co-ops, you've got market housing, you've got uh, government housing, and you can't tell the difference. Um, you know, it all works together. That was done under conservative governments, federal, provincial, and city. So, you know, they they uh, should look to their own history. Um, but different different taxation structure, right? Money there to spend on it. Um, I want to go back to the policing issue, though. So we saw, you know, some $2 million spent on clearing those encampments from the police. How do we, and it seems intractable, but there is a provincial angle to this, um, you know, uh, what is the, you know, what is the sense of how we can kind of, again, you know, if it's a mental health or wellness call, there should be a mental health team that goes out to that call, not men with guns. How do we make that shift um, when um, it seems like our governments simply don't even want to talk about it and the budget for, for policing just goes up every year? I mean, it is the major budget item in the city budget. And even with our reduced tax base, that money could, that $2 million could have gone for permanent housing. You know, it's interesting because uh, on the weekend I I, uh, I went to a funeral and ended up in conversation with the nephew of um, one of the people there who who happens to be a, a police officer. He wasn't in uniform, obviously, at the time. And we were talking about exactly this issue. And a police officer said to me, it makes no sense to weaponize the police against unhoused people and volunteers and it he could see that it doesn't do policing any good because it just it it isn't a solution to the problem and i think if you have police officers not all of them but some of them who can see that it, it, it has to be something that everybody starts to understand that when you start 
you're paying, we have a very small pot of public money. And when we are spending it on punishment, instead of solving the problem, we are never going to get where we need to go. And in fact, all we're going to do is end up exacerbating this issue of police um, citizen uh, relations, which are a disaster right now. So nobody benefits. In short, we have to change the discourse. I really fundamentally believe this so that we understand we're putting money into prevention. When you put money into prevention, you don't need to put it into punishment. And therefore, <laughs> we should be spending less on punishment, more on prevention. Um, and so it should be obvious that if you're if the largest amount of your dedicated precious public dollars is going into uh, police budgets and you're not having enough in terms of education in schools and anti-racism and creating opportunities for youth and eradicating poverty, then you have to fix that balance. Uh, speaking here to Rima Burns-McGowan, who's MPP for Beaches East York on the Radical Reverend Show. And if you've just tuned in, you've missed most of it, sadly, but you can catch it on podcast after the show is over. Uh, and that's iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. So please tune in. Um, so Rima, your Queen's Park is back. Last little session before the election. So you're there with the belly of the beast, so to speak. Um, uh, what's it been like? I mean, um, I mean, it, talk about frustration. It must seem very frustrating to sit across from folk who are not listening. So it, tell us about that. You, you know, it's, it's fascinating because at one level, it feels like they're not listening at all. And it's absolutely exhausting. And I feel like day, over, day after day, I go in there along with my colleagues and bang my head against a brick wall. And then at other levels, after three and a half years, I actually can hear the discourse starting to shift. I really can. There are, it, it isn't showing up yet in legislation, but it is showing up in interesting kinds of ways. My colleague, Suze Morrison, had a private member's bill up a little while ago to have an advisory committee in, um, in the healthcare field for uh, trans folk, just to make sure that they get what they need uh, from the health system. And interestingly, this was a, the government spoke as though they didn't need it, but then they passed it. Um, I'm not sure that would have happened three years ago. Um, for the very first time, Doug Ford was in the room for the minute of silence on the Trans Day of Remembrance that you insisted on becoming uh, a lot in Ontario. This would not have happened um, a couple of years ago. There are many places, sometimes after I stand up and speak, because I always try to make these connections and connect the dots and and so on. I'll have members of the opposition say, you know, I like it when you speak because I learned something. And I'm like, okay, we have yet to see that in your policies. But so I, I, yes, it's extraordinarily frustrating. And at the same time, uh, there are like glimmers of light, not enough. We're going to need a new government for that. But uh, there are glimmers in, of light, and I live for the glimmers of light at this point. <laughs> which is particularly brings us back to the start of our conversation with uh, talking about the season of light, uh, Hanukkah. Um, yes, light. And, and certainly, um, I mean, the hope for our world is that we can speak across aisles of all sorts and all differences. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's otherwise nothing changes, nothing shifts. Um, just to close out, um, just a few months left of, of government and so much to do. Um, hopefully some things won't happen and other things will. Um, where do you see, talking about light, where do you see some glimmer of, of hope um, in terms of actually um, the rubber hitting the road in terms of laws? I mean, do is there any hope that, now I know that Sue's, um, Sue's bill passed, but then there's still committee, blah, 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 right? And we it know that- second reading. It hasn't been yeah. enacted. Yes, and second reading then goes to committee and then committee can take, I mean, the liberal government used to be famous for killing bills at committee. So, I mean, they'd vote for everything second reading or almost everything. Um, and then um, and then it would never see the light of day. So I'm speaking as a, you know, bit of a cynic here after years at the place, but <laughs> simply saying, so where do you think they're, they're bendable? Because we on the outside looking in are trying to exert a lot of pressure on them to shift. Um, where do you think we should be focused? Where do you think they might shift? So I, th I think it's really crucial that the, and I think action on the outside needs to be to get them to understand that words are never enough and they can't just make gestures in the direction of good policy, which is what they've been doing. And they've been making more gestures um, in the direction of decent, poli po um, decent policy in the last months because they're aware that an election's coming up. But it's really a question of them understanding that, you know, hate, uh, there's no room for hate in Ontario. You can't just say that and then not actually fix uh, racism in education. You can't just say that and not put in, like actually enact um, the bill to counter Islamophobia that, you know, that that will be coming forward, that will be bringing forward actually um, in concert with NCCM, the uh, National Council of Canadian Muslims in, in the new year. You can't, you can't say the things and not do the things anymore. And so I think people really need to hold them accountable. And in ridings where they, um, where conservative MPPs live, it's very important for people living there to say, you know what, you say all this stuff, but we need to see it. Um, and in fact, I would hold, I would say that to liberals as well, because I think they're responsible for a, a lot of why we're here is they're saying one thing and doing another. Um, and it's why we're in this, this terrible situation that, that we're in. We actually need governments that do what they say and say what they're going to do and then, and then are held to it. So I think the job of activists and advocates is to hold their feet to the fire and make sure that we get action because I'm sick and tired of empty words. <laughs> uh, love it. Talking to Rima Burns McGowan here, MPP, Beaches East York. She is the critic for homelessness and poverty um, uh, for the official opposition at Queen's Park and, um, and a former prof. Um, Rima, you talked a bit at the beginning, we've just got a few minutes left, but that's such a shift to go from academia. And you talk about yourself as an introvert right off the top. And I wanna kind of circle back to that a little bit. Now you're an introvert doing an extrovert big time job. You're you know out there doing jobs that people you know, shy away from like knocking on strangers doors, and, you know, asking people for money over the phone and things. I mean, these are not jobs that, you know, that come easily to anybody. Um, and you're, you're doing them far out of your comfort zone. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
what what do you think you know you would say to your former self as an academic about the political life now that you are in it i mean what do you think just talking to academics for a minute i mean they're in a tough place too i mean we've underfunded universities forever and auditor general talked about that in her report um you know what what would you say to your former colleagues um about what they can do as potential activists so I think it's really important uh, if you're an academic to figure out how to say what you need to say about making the world better in language that non-academics can understand. And there is a way to do it. You can always do it. When I was in the classroom, I always tried to frame what I had to say, not only for the kids who already got it, but for the kids who needed to get it and weren't sure how to get there. And academics can do that. They're smart people. They're capable of doing that. Be, try to think about how to be a public uh, persona and take those important things that you've, that you've thought through out into the public world so that these ideas can be discussed where the rubber hits the road and where public policy gets made. And I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. Well, happy end of Hanukkah and happy beginning of more or less of Christmas season. <laughs> Have a wonderful, wonderful uh, time with your family and, uh, and best of luck in the remaining days. When does the house actually rise? Thursday. <laughs> Thursday. So only a couple more days and then you're home free. Um, again, uh, <laughs> thank you. Speaking to Rima Burns McGowan again. And by the way, out there in listener land, we always respond to what you have to say. We love what you have to say. Um, we love hearing from you. So do uh, get in touch with me, Sherry DeNovo, host of your show. And let me know what you think, uh, especially about the series on activism, because um, because it should hit home to everyone. Uh, take care and have a happy end of Hanukkah and a happy Peace Week of Advent next time on The Radical Reverend Show.